Well, if you're, uh, if you're just now joining us, we have uh, spent the last year and a half in the book of Exodus, and we just brought that to a close last Sunday, and today we start our series in the Gospel of John. Um, I'm sure like many of you, um, I, I have a really sweet history with this book. This was, uh, I think, Martin Lloyd-Jones is his favorite book in the Bible, and I've heard that from many others. Um, Danny, we were talking this week, your favorite book. Um, so when I got saved in middle school, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I think it'd be good. When I got saved in middle school, I began to read the Bible voraciously. Uh, I began to devour it and memorize scripture, and a lot of the early scripture that I memorized in the NIV was out of John's gospel. Fast forward many years, um, I'm in Boston, and I start my graduate work. I was doing seminary at Gordon-Conwell, and I had a professor, so I did a Master of Arts in Old Testament Studies and a Master of Arts in New Testament Studies, and my, my New Testament work was in the Gospels. I really focused on the Gospels. And so I had classes on Matthew, or sorry, Mark, uh, Luke, and John. The only book that I didn't get into uh, much was Matthew. But John, I had a professor named Stephen Whitmer, and Stephen Whitmer had just come back from Cambridge. He'd been teaching at Cambridge. He did his uh, PhD at Cambridge, and uh, he did his doctorate in the Gospel of John. And he'd grown up going to John Piper's church and did a, a program that was called the Bethlehem Institute before they started a seminary. And it was a program between undergrad and grad school to kind of prepare young men for ministry. And Piper had said that Stephen Whitmer was his most gifted student ever. And I was so excited to take him in John's Gospel. And he was brand new. He looked like a student. I, I thought he looked kind of like a Doogie Howser. You know, he just looked really young, if you remember that show. Anyways, um, but a wonderful teacher, and we lived in John together for a whole semester. And I memorized much of it, and I had to translate all of it from the Greek to the English. And I fell in love with this gospel. I'm so thankful for the gospel of John. And so we're going to be in John for a while. How long's a while, you might ask? I don't know. We're going to be in here for more than a year. Um, so get ready. What, what I want to do this morning is simply whet your appetite for this book. Uh, I'm going to do an introduction, a pretty simple introduction. I'm going to focus on three things. But again, my goal for us this morning is for you to be in this mindset, I can't wait to come back next Sunday because we're going to dive into the text. We'll look, and we'll look at several passages this morning, but we'll start our verse-by-verse -verse exposition next Sunday, John 1, 1 to 5. Um, one of the questions posed in this seminary class was, why are there four Gospels? Have you ever wondered that? Why do we have four Gospels? Why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why not just one? If you know much about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptics because they're very similar in content. John itself is very unique, and I'll talk about that this morning. But why four? Well, this professor, Dr. Whitmer, he compared it to the Venus de Milo. And I've seen the Venus de Milo. It's housed at the Louvre in Paris, and uh, it's, it's from the 2nd century B.C., the Hellenistic era. It's a sculpture of a woman, and she's missing her arms. Kind of sad. What happened to her, I wonder? Just kidding, they just broke off over time. Um, but she's missing her arms. But if, you, if you've seen this sculpture or pictures of it, don't get on your phones right now. You can look at it after church. But it is incredible. The detail is incredible. This was made by hand. And it's fairly large. And so my professor said, if you're looking at the Venus de Milo from the front, 
you can really appreciate it. You can appreciate the detail, the fold in the garment, like it's marble, but I mean, you have like this garment that goes around her torso, and it's just, all the details exquisite. But to really appreciate this sculpture, you have to move around. So imagine it's right here. So I'm, I'm limited in my perspective. I can't see this side or that side of the back, so I need to move. And I get a new perspective. And I, oh, wow, I didn't see this, all this beautiful detail. And then really I need to go back here and, and see it from a different perspective, right? Because it's so beautiful to really appreciate it, you need multiple perspectives. That's why we have four Gospels. Is there anyone more beautiful than Christ? Is there anyone more wonderful than Christ? That is why God in his providence has given us four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Amen? All right, so again, my goal today is to whet our appetite for this book. We're going to look ahead, and we're going to be at about 30,000 feet looking down. And the next week, we're going to bring the plane down, and we'll start moving through this incredible gospel, looking at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, verse by verse. Three things. How many? Okay, three. Three things I want to emphasize this morning, and we're going to move relatively quickly. The first thing is authorship. Who wrote it? Who wrote John? John, obviously, yeah. What are the major themes? So we'll look at authorship, who wrote it, major themes, what it's about, and then thirdly, we'll look at the purpose statement. Why was it written? Authorship, who wrote it? Themes, what's this wonderful gospel about? And then purpose, why was it written? Let's start with number one, authorship. And I think you're going to see something you've never seen today about John, the beloved disciple, and the significance of him being the author of this gospel. All right, so who wrote it? Well, that John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, wrote this gospel, the fourth gospel, is attested by both internal and external evidence, okay? The gospel itself testifies to the fact that John wrote this gospel, the external evidence being church history, all the way back to the early church fathers, Irenaeus. Everyone has agreed, the church has always agreed that John, the beloved disciple, wrote this gospel. As I've told my boys before, boys, listen, when you're thinking about Jesus and his death and resurrection, there's only great evidence for it. There's no good evidence against it. And if you look at the authorship of John, was it written by John? The evidence for it is incredible. The evidence against it is poor. And so I'm going to assume, because I believe it to be true, that John wrote this. Are we good? And you're thinking, okay, is that it? No, no, that's not it. I want to make an argument this morning for the reliability of John's gospel in relation to John. Why does it matter that John, one of the 12 disciples, in fact, one of the inner three, right, Peter, James, and John, why does it matter that he wrote this gospel? And is he, if he did in fact write it, a reliable witness? Is he a reliable witness? Now, again, we've got to step back. As Christians, we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is God's book for God's people. It is without error, right? It is authoritative. It is true in all that it says. But does it matter that it was written by John. Of course it does. Is John a reliable witness? What do you think? I think he is. Okay? We know John's relationship to Jesus was 
unique. Again, he, I mentioned this earlier, but he was one of the inner three. You had Peter, James, and John. And so oftentimes, if Jesus would get away from the twelve, he would take these three. We see it in Mark 9, in Luke 9, on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Where Jesus is radically transformed. His glory is on display. Even, you know, Moses shows up. That's pretty cool. Do you guys know this story? Elijah shows up. And then there's the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying right before, moments before his arrest and crucifixion. And who does he take with him? Peter, James, and John. So, again, we could argue that John shared a closer, he had closer access, he had more access to Jesus than the other disciples, along with Peter and James. Now, throughout John's gospel, he's referred to, this is interesting, as the disciple that Jesus loves. So, with John as the author, we are getting reportage from someone who knew Jesus very well. This wasn't just a casual relationship. John, he was loved by Jesus. He spent a lot of time with Jesus. And oftentimes, when Jesus got away, who was there with him at his side? John. This argument, this is good. This is what I was saying earlier. You've probably never heard this. This argument is further supported when we compare John's, so John's relationship to Jesus to Jesus' relationship to the Father. Okay? Now follow me here. We're going to compare John's relationship to Jesus to Jesus' relationship to the Father. So let's start with the question, who is better to testify about the Father, God the Father, than God the Son, Jesus? Who's better? What's the answer? Nobody, right? No one. Why? Why? John 1.18. Now pay attention to this verse. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Two persons within the Godhead are being distinguished here. You have the Father and the Son. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. That person's God who has made the Father known. Who is John talking about here? Who, also being God, has made God the Father known? Jesus, the Son of God. Now, let's talk about the Greek here. The Greek literally translates, so if you're, if you're reading the ESV, which I've read, who is at the Father's side, the Greek is literally who is in the Father's bosom or on his chest. He has made him known. Now, how is this image of someone lying on someone's bosom, reclining on their chest, to be understood within this historical context, the culture in which John is writing his gospel. That's strange language, right? But maybe not. If you're married and you're sitting on the couch with your wife, oftentimes Haley will lean up against my chest, and that denotes intimacy. It denotes closeness. So again, this language on the bosom of the Father denotes intimacy. It could actually read the Greek in closest relationship, greatest possible closeness, a place of honor. So if you're at a banquet and the host of the banquet invites you to come sit by him and you get to lean up against him, again, there's nothing uh, suspect about that. That just stood as the place of honor. It's an honored position. So what does it say about Jesus? Jesus knows the Father intimately. Therefore, who better to reveal the Father than the Son who knows the Father unlike anyone 
else and who has existed with him in perfect eternal fellowship. And this is emphasized multiple times throughout John's gospel. John 8, 38. I speak, Jesus says, of what I've seen with my father. (laughs) He's referring to a previous relationship. He's known the father for how long, by the way? Forever. (laughs) John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. John 14, 8 and 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the, seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? John 17, 24 and 26. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. John, who wrote this gospel, wants us to see that there is no one, everybody say no one, there's no one more qualified to witness to the Father than Jesus on the basis. Everybody say on the basis. On the basis of the Son's unique relationship with the Father. Would you rather, I love this game by the way, would you rather read a biography on President Abraham Lincoln written by me or by his wife Mary Todd Lincoln? The person who knew him better than anyone else. You got to think about Mary Todd. If you've read anything about Lincoln, I mean, behind every great man, there's a great woman. Amen. But I mean, Mary Todd knew her husband intimately. She knew his foibles, she knew his downs, but she knew his triumphs as well. She saw everything. Her intimate relationship with Lincoln uniquely qualifies her to bear witness about him. Is true. That is what John is showing us about Jesus. Now, what about John? What about John? How does Jesus' relationship to the Father, which, again, uniquely qualifies him to bear witness about the Father, compare to John's relationship to Jesus? Who wrote the gospel? John. What qualifies John to bear witness about Jesus? Are you ready? Check this out. This is cool. This is the part I said, I bet you've never seen this. Maybe you have. John 13, 23. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. The Greek literally reads, it's the same that we just saw in John 1.18, he was reclining on the bosom of Jesus. We just saw that in John 1.18. What does that language convey? Absolute closeness, unique relationship. The kind of relationship that the Son has always had with the Father What's being established in John? John has that kind of relationship with Jesus. Isn't that cool? Who better to testify about Jesus than John? John 21, verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Again, that same instance, that same event is referenced. John, the beloved disciple, is described as having a privileged position with Jesus, a closeness, again, being in this place of intimacy. It was this disciple 
who would reveal Jesus through this gospel. He would do so on the basis of his close, intimate relationship with Jesus. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet? All right, so that's authorship. That's authorship. Let's talk about themes. What's this book about? Now, John is certainly the most unique gospel. If you've read the gospels, and I know Pastor Aaron's been reading through all four for what now? Probably three or four months, right? Just reading through the gospels. If you've spent any time in the Gospels, if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll realize quickly that John is very unique. Now, is it talking about the same Jesus? Of course. But John emphasizes certain things, many certain things, that are not found in the other Gospel accounts. Now, if you compare John to the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and... That's it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You quickly make, I would say, a surprising discovery. Okay, and I don't know how well you know Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but here's the discovery you would make if you read them today. The events and items that are common to Matthew, Mark, and Luke are absent from John. Jesus' baptism. The calling of the twelve. The exorcisms of Jesus. The transfiguration. His parables. In the instruction of the Lord's Supper. Not found in John, but found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, Matthew and Luke also have the birth narrative, right? The birth story. Not found in Mark, but also not found in John. Now, what's unique to John? What makes John, the Gospel of John, so different, so unique? Now, for starters, you have the seven I am sayings. And I've written a Bible study on the I am sayings that I'll have uh, Brother Aaron provide in the book nook this week. There's the numerous lengthy teaching discourses that are found in John. John 6, it's like 76 verses. There's the miracle of turning water into wine, only found in John, found nowhere else. His interaction with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, John 3 and John 4. The raising of Lazarus from the dead, John 11. And the lengthy farewell discourse on the night before his death, all unique to John. So what I want to do now, and this is going to be the majority of my teaching, I want to highlight 13 themes, 13 themes that are unique to John, themes that we will revisit again and again and again together. All right, so major themes in John. Are you ready? Let's go. Number one, Jesus, again, this is answering the question, what is John about? Number one, Jesus as the fulfillment of Jewish festivals, institutions, and symbols. John, this is really important, by the way. Okay, one more time. Jesus as the fulfillment of Jewish institutions, festivals, and symbols. John wants us to see that all the major Jewish celebrations, all the major Jewish symbols find their fulfillment. They point to and find their fulfillment in who? Jesus. He is the true tabernacle and temple. That's John 1 and John 2. He is the Passover lamb. That's John 1. He is leading his people into a greater exodus. He's the greater Moses. That's John 6. Now, most believe that John's gospel was written to both Jews and Gentiles. And this is seen in both John's emphasis on Jewish customs and Old Testament language, all pointing to a Jewish audience. Who's going to be most familiar with Jewish customs in Old Testament language? Jews. But at the same time, you have points in the gospel where these things are explained. 
these customs that Jews would have been intimately familiar with, John takes time to explain, which would make sense if he's also writing to Gentiles, those who were not as familiar with Jewish festivals and celebrations and symbols. B, so A is, again, Jesus as fulfillment, Jewish festivals, institutions, and symbols. B, the miracles of Jesus as evidence for his identity as Messiah. John's gospel is often referred to as the book of signs, signs or miracles. Okay, so chapters 1 through 12, which chapters? 1 through 12, basically the first half, are organized around seven signs, seven miracles, which span from Jesus turning water into wine in Cana, that's John 2, to John 11, which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus' identity, who he is, his identity as Messiah, and again, when you hear Messiah, think king. He's the promised king. He's the anointed king. He's the king to rescue God's people. The Messiah is the what? He's the king. Good. Amen. Jesus' identity as Messiah is emphasized throughout and is supported by these specific miracles, which I'll make that point, I'll make that argument every week when we look at a miracle. And what we're going to see later in more detail is that John specifically connects these miracles to Jesus' identity as Messiah, inviting the reader inviting the reader to believe in Jesus on the basis of these miracles. And the climax, the climax of the miracles of Jesus, which Kobe prayed about, is the death and resurrection, which together function as the miracle of all miracles, which point to the fact that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the King of promise. C, the deity of Christ. Now, what does deity refer to? His divinity, the fact that he is God. Jesus is? He's God. Does that matter? Yes, it's massive. It's a non-negotiable. If you don't believe that, you're not a part of God's family. That's his identity. He is God. And John goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus is God. I would say more than any other gospel, John speaks to the deity of Jesus. This is going to be good. Now we're going to look at a lot of scripture in John. What you'll see, if you've read John, is John is framed, it begins and ends on the deity of Christ. Isn't that cool? Now, if a book in the Bible begins on one theme and ends on one theme, do you think it's important? Of course it is, right? So, John 1.1, which we'll look at next week, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, here it is, was God. Whoa! And then we go to the end, John 20, verse 28. Thomas answered Jesus. He answered him, my Lord and my my God. Whoa. Where else do we see the deity of Christ emphasized in John's gospel? I've already referenced it, John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. God has made him known. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ, amen. Now possibly, possibly the greatest argument for the deity of Christ in John's gospel is found in the abundance of I am sayings. Now these sayings hearken back to Exodus 
3.14, where God reveals his name to Moses. And what name does God give Moses? I am. Jesus, all throughout John, unabashedly takes on the divine name. Now, the significance of this is seen in John 8. John 8, 58 and 59, where after proclaiming himself to be I am, the Jews pick up stones to throw at him. Why? Because they regarded what he said as blasphemy. We see the same response to Jesus in John 5, 17 and 18, and then again in John 10, 30 to 33. In these passages, Jesus claims to be the Son of God, a phrase that the Jews understood as Jesus saying he is God, making himself equal with God, and they didn't like it. They didn't like it. Now, let me talk about the date. There seems to be a correlation here to the date of John's gospel. Now, all, listen, all of the gospels support speak to, highlight the deity of Christ, but none so much as, which gospel? John. Most scholars agree, most conservative evangelical scholars that we would say are in our camp, most of them agree that John was written between 70 AD and 100 AD after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and towards the end of John's life. Now, here's why it's important, the date. Here's the correlation between the date and this emphasis on the deity of Christ. It's likely that John's emphasis on the deity of Christ was in response to what? At this time, there was called the emperor cult. And under the reign of Domitian, I think he was 81 AD to 96, he was going around saying, I'm God. I'm God, worship me. A mere man saying, I'm God. And John is saying, no, 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 you're not God. You're not Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Don't bow down to Caesar. Bow down to Christ. Amen? So again, at the time, this emperor worship was really ramping up, and John wants his readers to see Caesar is not Lord. Don't bow the knee to him. He's not God. Jesus is God. He is worthy of our praise and worship. D, the new Exodus. That sounds familiar, Exodus. Oh, we just got out of Exodus. It's very intentional while we're in John now. Please, please know that. John, more than any of the gospel writers, connects the ministry of Jesus to the book of Exodus. This is very fascinating. The book of Isaiah, if you've read Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 55, speak of a new Exodus. Now, what was the Exodus? What word comes to mind when you hear Exodus? Not the book, but the event. Rescue, who said it? Rescue. That was my mom. Okay, rescue. I didn't feed her that, by the way, okay? Rescue, deliverance, salvation. So there's this promise in Isaiah 40 to 55 that what God did then, he would do again in the future. There would be a new exodus, a new exodus. John wants us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the new exodus through his life, his death, in his resurrection. For example, in John 6, in the context of feeding the 5,000, John looks back to the Exodus in God's miraculous provision of manna. He then speaks of himself as the greater bread. Who's the greater bread? Come down from heaven. Who's the bread of life? John 6, 35. Who's the greater bread? 
that will fulfill you forever. You eat this bread and you'll never go hungry again. Who is it? Jesus. Jesus. John 6, 48 to 51. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Oh, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live how long? Forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Hmm. E. The next theme is witness. This is a big theme in John. Witness. John highlights numerous witnesses throughout his gospel to testify to the identity of Jesus. He highlights the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, the ministry of John the Baptist, and especially the miracles of Jesus to show that Jesus truly is the long-awaited King of promise. All of these things, from the Old Testament to the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of the Spirit, to the miracles of Jesus, all bear witness that Jesus is the long-awaited King of promise. F, life, life. Zoe, this is a big word in John. It appears time and time again. Life. If you're alive, look at me. Okay. (laughs) Do we care about life? Do we value life? What kind of life is emphasized in John's gospel? What kind of life? Eternal life. Eternal life. John wants us to see that true life, eternal life, full life is found where? It's found in a person. It's found in Jesus. Jesus is the giver of what? Eternal life. John 1.4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. John 3.16. I'm sure a few of you know this one. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not die, would not perish eternally, but have eternal what? Life. John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live. He will have life. He will live how long? Forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it what? abundantly. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Another major theme in John's gospel is light. It's G, light, another L word. Jesus, listen, this is really important. Jesus as the light is the full revelation of who? He came to reveal who? He's qualified to reveal who? God. He is God. He is the one, as the light, who breaks into the, into the darkness of a fallen world to bring salvation. As the light, Jesus shows us the way. Amen? As the light, he shows us the way. He exposes our sin as the light, and as the light, he illuminates our hearts and minds to God's truth. This language of light has deep roots in the Old Testament. One thinks especially of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what did he say? Let there be light. And there was light. But beyond that, it's helpful to look to Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60, 1 to 3. The promise of rescue. The promise of salvation. And how is it described? 
Isaiah 61 to 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. I wonder who fulfilled that. Christ. John 1, 4-5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We'll look at that next week. John 3, 19-21, and this is the judgment. I wonder if we're familiar with 3.16, how about 3.19-21? And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved what? They loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They don't want their works to be exposed. What does the light do? It exposes. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John eight twelve. again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Next, truth. H, truth. It's a major theme in John's gospel. I can't wait to talk about this in more detail. John focuses attention on Jesus as the truth. Aletheia. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And of course, again, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I is salvation. Is salvation a big theme in John, you think? Salvation? I think so. This is certainly why Jesus came. He came to save. And this is emphasized at the outset. Now, not only, this is important, not only does John address the question of salvation from what, but salvation how? Both are answered. Salvation from what? What do we need saving from? If I told you, get saved, you might say, well, saved from what? Is there somebody behind me? Am I sick? What do I need saving from? John answers that question, but he answers the more important question, how? How? Let's start with from what? From what? John 1.29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is John the Baptist. And said, Behold, Edu, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not what? Perish, but have eternal life. John 3.36. I love this one. Whoever believes in the Son has what? That's life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life because God's wrath remains on him. Jesus came to save us from God's wrath, from eternal death, from hell, which we all deserve. Now how? How would he do that? This is an important question, so pay attention. How? John shows us time and time again that God is sovereign in salvation. It is the Lord's doing from beginning to end. John 3, 5 to 8. 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Son gives life to whom He will. The Son gives life to whom He, he will. John 6, 37 and 44. Oh, all. I hope your appetite is being whetted. I hope expectations are increasing. I hope excitement is stirring for this gospel. John 6, 37 and 44, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. No one can come to me. Listen, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 27 to 28, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, Jesus says, and they follow me. I give them. Who gives them? Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one, oh, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Lastly here, John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The next big theme is J, the hour. The hour is talked about a lot in John's gospel. The hour, the hour represents what in John? What is the hour? Say it. His death, his crucifixion. But here's, what, here's the cool thing. The hour in John represents simultaneously, yes, the cross, but also the cross, which stands as the moment, the climactic moment of his exaltation. He is literally lifted up at the cross. John speaks of the moment or hour of the cross as the moment when Jesus is lifted up or exalted. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Everything in John's gospel is leading up to this hour, the hour of the cross, the hour or moment of glory, when the King of Kings will be lifted up on our behalf. Amen? John 7, verse 30 So they were seeking to arrest Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. There's a really great scene in Luke 4 where Jesus goes into the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah and he reads Isaiah 60 and basically proclaims himself, right, to be the Messiah. The Spirit is going to come down and rest upon the servant of the Lord. He puts down the scroll and he says, I am he. The time has come. I'm the fulfillment of this promise. I mean, incredible, right? And then he walks out and some of the Jews were so enraged by this. How could you say? They bring him to a cliff to throw him off, and then Jesus kind of just turns around and walks through him because the text says his hour had not yet come. Pretty cool. Uh, John 13, 1. I'm going to read one more here. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's other references you can read later on. K. I got three more themes. K. 
the mission, this is so good, the mission of the Messiah's community, the mission of the king's people, right? Those who trust in Jesus are part of his new messianic community. This community, delineated by faith in Jesus, is marked by what? The people of God, those who trust in Christ, the church. What are we marked by? What should we be marked by? I'll tell you. Love for one another. It's John 13, 34, and 35. Obedience to King Jesus, John 14, 15. Unity, John 17, 20, and 21. In spirit-filled mission, John 20, 21, and 22. This community, God's people, those who have trusted in Christ, in the Messiah, this community is commissioned empowered, and sent out by King Jesus. This community will endure hardship and persecution from the world. That's John 15, 18 to 20. And yet, everybody say, and yet. Okay, listen, this community, this community, right? The king's people, marked by love, obedience, spirit-filled mission, will endure hardship, yes. And yet, what do we learn in John's gospel? This community will be given the spirit John 15, 26, and the word, John 16, verse 13, to accomplish the king's work. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Next, union with Christ. (laughs) Union with Christ. John writes his gospel to call his readers to enjoy life in Christ. Now, union with Christ, what does that mean? Union with Christ refers to the believer's personal and dynamic relationship with the Lord. We are joined to Christ. We are joined to Christ by faith so that what is his now becomes ours. Through union with Christ, we get a new identity as children of God. That's John 1.12. And new power for fruitful living. This is most clearly seen in John 15. John 15, verse 1 and verses 4 to 5. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Verse 4, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let me skip down to the last one, belief. Oh, is belief emphasized in John? belief or faith, I would say more than any other gospel, John sheds light on the appropriate response to Jesus, which is what? Faith. In fact, we could argue that John's gospel is an invitation to believe in Jesus for what? For salvation. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. Let me skip down. John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. John 6, 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe, that you believe, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then lastly here, John eleven twenty five 25 to 27, Jesus said to her, I am the, this is Martha, right? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, there it is. Whoever believes in me, listen, these are promises. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he what? He shall live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? <laughs> That's Jesus talking. I mean, but yeah, do you believe that? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That is the appropriate response to Jesus, namely faith or belief. Now let's end with the purpose. Give me three minutes. The purpose. If you're really gracious, you'll give me four. Can I have four? Thank you. Okay, good. The purpose. Why? Why was John written? John 20, 30 to 31. I had Brother Kobe read it for us. Now Jesus did many other signs, and the signs refer to his what? His miracles. So Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might what? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. Now if I was a a seminary professor, which I have been, I would say how many of those themes that we just covered are found in the purpose statement? Quite a few. Quite a few. Which ones? John, listen, John writes his gospel to highlight the miracles of Jesus. Miracles which reveal his identity as Messiah. So that those who read it might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing they may have what? Life. Life in his name. Life in Christ. Our series title is Behold and Believe. Just think BB. BB. Behold and Believe. For John's gospel is based on these verses which make up John's purpose statement. John is calling our attention to the signs or miracles of Jesus, miracles that give evidence for his identity as Messiah. The climactic miracle of Jesus is his death and resurrection through which salvation has been provided for sinners. John is inviting his readers to do what? What's the appropriate response to Jesus? Who he is and what he did? Believe. John is inviting his readers to believe in Jesus as Messiah on the basis of these miracles, and especially the miracle of his death and resurrection to save sinners. But with that, John is inviting his readers to have life in Jesus. Life, true life, eternal life, abundant life is found in who? Jesus. The climactic miracle of Jesus, his death and resurrection, is what provides eternal life for sinners. Behold and believe. Behold and believe. Behold Christ. Behold his miracles. Behold his death and resurrection and believe. Assurance. Who likes assurance? Who wants assurance? Assurance is based on our faith in Jesus. Recently, I had a conversation with a man. This was two weeks ago, and I said, listen, if you die today, and we're all going to die, and you stand before God, and we're all going to stand before God, and he asks you this simple question, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And this person who I love started pointing to his works. I've lived a good life, and in my heart, I'm screaming, what? No! We have assurance based on what? What is this gospel calling us to do? Believe. Trust. 
were justified or declared right before God by trusting, believing in Jesus who lived a perfect life, died for sinners, and rose again. You know, John was written with an evangelistic purpose in mind. Now, the Greek leads to this reading. If you, if you know the Greek, it lends to this understanding of John if you look at the purpose statement, verse 31. Verse 31 can actually be read as this, that you may believe that the Messiah is Jesus. John is answering a huge question. Who's the Messiah? Who is he? Who's the promised king? And the answer is Jesus. And if you believe that, what are you promised? Life in his name. John's answer to that question is Jesus. On what basis? His miracles, especially his death and resurrection. Why believe? Why believe? To have life in his name. If, everybody say if, if you wish to be rescued from eternal death, the wrath of God, hell, then you must place your faith in Jesus. You must trust in Jesus as the king of promise. Faith. Faith. Everybody say faith. Faith is the goal of John's gospel. And eternal life is the promise. Faith is the goal of John's gospel. And eternal life is the promise. Have you trusted in Jesus for eternal life? You can do that today. Let's pray. Father, we are excited and most likely overwhelmed by this gospel. But I thank you that we have time to move through it carefully, slowly, And as we do that, Father, help us. Help us by the Holy Spirit. Grant us understanding. As the psalmist prays in Psalm 119, verse 18, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things in John's gospel. Help us to understand each passage, each verse, each word. And I pray that through these next months and even years of study in the Gospel of John, that we would love Jesus more, that, Father, we would be more conformed to his image. I pray that you would save many unbelievers through this study, that you would ignite a greater passion in our hearts for the Great Commission, that we would truly live because of this study in your word as people who belong to King Jesus, people of the Messiah, marked by love for each other, marked by obedience to King Jesus, marked by unity as a body, and Father, marked by spirit-filled mission to go and make disciples all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen.